to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 16, as we follow along with today's lesson. I'm not really worthy to untie his sandals. And he's going to baptize you, not with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Now, in those days... Uh, You know that when you harvest wheat that it has a husk around the kernel. And that husk is very unpalatable. It doesn't dissolve in your mouth. It'll choke you. It's it's, uh, hard and and, and sort of uh, stiff and thorny almost. And, And thus... When they would harvest the wheat, they would put it out on the floor and then they would walk on it and and trample it uh, to break the husk away from the kernel. And then they would sometimes be on a top of a hill and they would throw the wheat into the air and the chaff uh, or the... uh, this husk is light and and the wind would blow it away and and just the wheat would fall back down on the floor. Or if they didn't have a windy place, they would take a fan and they would fan the wheat and blow the chaff off with the fan and uh, thus just the wheat would be left. And so the idea was the separation of the chaff from the wheat, the chaff which was worthless and was burned. To get rid of it, they'd just burn the chaff. But the wheat uh, was what they were really interested in. And so as John is talking about Jesus, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his fan is in his hand, and he's going to thoroughly purge uh, the floor and gather the wheat into his garner but the chaff will be blown away. Uh, In Psalm 1, the psalmist talks about, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does will prosper. But the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff, which is blown away by the wind. And so here the same kind of an allegory is used concerning Jesus, but with the fan in his hand, blowing away the chaff, which will be burned with an unquenchable fire, and the wheat he will gather into his garner. The king is coming, and the king is going to gather the wheat into his garner, into the barn, and yet the chaff. Now, the main thing then is to determine, are you wheat or are you chaff? Uh, and it's important that that uh, distinction is made. There, there's a lot of, of chaff, and uh, then there is the true wheat, and no, by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ, we are, we are the, the, the wheat that will be gathered by him. Now, many other things in his exhortation he preached unto the people. He's very direct, very straight uh, with them, and uh, he exhorted them. He was quite an exhorter. But Herod the Tetrarch, uh, that is Herod Antipas, who was over the area around the Sea of Galilee, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all of the evils which Herod had done. Herod was an evil man, done a lot of evil things. He abused his position of power. Uh, he went to Rome and enticed his brother's wife to move back uh, with him to uh, Galilee uh, that she might uh, sort of be the queen and in fact, uh, they did seek to get him the title of king, which uh, sort of put him on the outs with the Roman uh, emperor. But uh, John the Baptist, straight shooter, he said, that's not right. What you've done is evil. It's wrong. It's a sin. And it upset Herodias, and hell hath no fury like a woman Scorned, and she was scorned by the prophet, and so she was after John. So Herod re, uh, was rebuked by John for all the evils he had done. He added yet this above all that he had done thus far, in that he shut up John in prison. Now the other Gospels, of course, tell us how that uh, Herodias' daughter, that would be the stepdaughter of uh, Herod uh, danced for him and his friends and he was uh, moved lustily for her and uh, said he'd give her anything she wanted and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. So uh, this is that Herod. Now when the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized. Now, uh, John doesn't tell us, I mean, Luke doesn't tell us how that John, first of all, sort of uh, objected to Jesus being baptized or, or baptizing Jesus. He said, I need that you should baptize me. But uh, 
Luke doesn't tell us that. He just tells us that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, praying, the heaven was open. This word for prayer, and there are probably seven Greek words or so for prayer, that uh, are supplication, are uh, different aspects and, and types of prayers, intercession and so forth. Uh, this word is is sort of all-encompassing. It is a worship and adoration kind of a thing. So that, and it's only Luke that tells us that while Jesus was baptized, he was standing there just worshiping, uh, just in adoration when the heaven was open. Now, uh, the heaven there is singular, which would be the third heaven or the dwelling place of God. Uh, there are heavens. Um, there, there is the atmosphere around the earth, which is called heaven. Uh, there is uh, the celestial heaven, the stars, the moon, the planets, and so forth. Uh, then there is the heaven, which is the actual dwelling place of God. And so... Uh, it's called the third heaven, and uh, to distinguish it from the atmosphere around the earth and from the celestial heavens, the dwelling place of God, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. Now, here is the only place in the scripture that uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, in the form of a dove. In the Talmud, the Hebrew commentary, more to, or less, upon the Pentateuch, when it speaks of Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. The Talmud, in its description and translation, talks about how that the Spirit of God, in the form of a dove, moved over the face of the waters. So that um, it is in the Talmud, but it isn't found in the Bible itself except for here. And here is the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Interesting that Jesus said you're to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Harmless not meaning, you know, not being vicious, but it, it's being without guile. Uh, it, it's it's um, a, a way of just saying, you know, that you're to be gentle, without guile, uh, like a dove. And then um, we know that the dove was the accepted sacrifice for the poor. If they could not afford to bring a lamb, they could bring doves. Now the Spirit of God in the form of a dove, Jesus is to be the sacrifice. 
and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, one of the sacrificial animals, uh, descends and lights upon him. And the voice of the Father speaks, declaring, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Luke, in sort of showing to us the human side of Jesus, is the only writer who mentions that Jesus was praying when he was baptized. And Luke tells us that Jesus was praying when he was transfigured. He tells us that Jesus was praying when the disciples came back and and were reporting uh, the glorious things that God had done. In the 12th chapter uh, of the Gospel of John, uh, there are three times when God spoke. uh, At the baptism, and in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, when the Greeks had come to see Jesus, and this is really just before his crucifixion. Jesus, there in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 27, said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into, unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people therefore that stood by heard it and said that it thundered. Others said that an angel spoke to him. Three times God spoke from heaven. One, at his baptism. Two, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then just before his crucifixion, when he was praying that the Father would glorify the Son. In his submission to the Father to the cross. Now, in all three instances, it was in relationship to the death of Christ and his obedience to the Father in the death. Uh, In uh, Philippians 2, as it talks about Jesus emptying himself, coming in the form of a servant, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has also highly exalted him. Uh, So here at the baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, the beginning of his ministry, but his whole purpose in coming is that he might Submit to the will of the Father and go to the cross and die for our sins. And the interesting thing of Jesus being baptized, as it was right with John said, you know, you don't need to be baptized. I need that you should baptize me. But Jesus said, suffer to be so because it fulfills me to become all righteousness. You see, even there, he was baptized in John's baptism, which was for the repentance of sin. But he had done no sin. But he was being baptized because he was going to take upon himself our sin. And for that, 
he was then going to die. So the whole idea of the cross is tied together with, with the voice of God from heaven declaring his pleasure in his son. And, and then, of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were talking to him of his death uh, when he went to Jerusalem. And again, the Father uh, spoke from heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. And then when Jesus was submitting there in the last hours, uh, saying, you know, what shall I say, Father, deliver me from this hour, but for this cause I came to the world. Father, glorify thy name. And, and the voice from heaven again, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So that uh, the, the voice of God from heaven three times confirming uh, Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Uh, John in his uh, gospel talks about uh, John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus. Uh, then uh, his works were a witness. And then how the Spirit bore witness and how the God bore witness. And there are people who say, well, I have a problem with, with you know, Jesus and all. Well, then you have a problem with God because he bore witness, this is my son. You have a problem with the Holy Spirit uh, who, who testifies of the son. And you have problems with the, with the works of Jesus and uh, with the Bible itself because this is really the declaration of the Bible that Jesus is the son of God who was manifested to take away our sins through his death on the cross for us. So... Here we find the three, the Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and the Father speaking from heaven, uh, the triunity of the Godhead. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, that as it was supposed, literally in the uh, Greek is, um, according to the law, the son of Joseph. He wasn't actually the son of Joseph, but was adopted. Thus, by the law, he was the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. Now, in uh, Matthew's genealogy, uh, he tells us uh, that um, Joseph... Uh, was the uh, son of Jacob. Here he is called the son of Heli, a difference. Because here in Luke we have actually the genealogy of Mary. He was the son of Heli by marriage. In Matthew you have the actual genealogy of Joseph. Here the genealogy of Mary, a son of Eli by marriage, by virtue of his marriage to Mary. In Matthew's gospel, they trace his genealogy back to Abraham because through David, because the Messiah was to be the uh, descendant of the seed of Abraham, he was also to be of the seed of David. So they trace him back to Abraham through David. Uh, 
In Mary's genealogy, it's traced all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. Luke was writing basically to the Gentiles. And he's not just the savior of the Jews, he's the savior of the world, all mankind. And thus he goes back to Adam. And from Adam to David, the genealogies are the same. But at David, the genealogies then change. In Matthew, who uh, is giving the genealogy of Joseph, from David, the line comes through Solomon and on down then to Joseph. In Mary's genealogy, from David, it comes through David's son, Nathan. And so from David on, you're following in Mary a little different genealogy than that of Joseph in that Joseph comes through Solomon and the uh, kingly line of Solomon. Whereas Mary's comes through another son of David, Nathan. So both of them could trace their ancestry back to David only through different lines of David's family. But the important thing to really note is in Matthew's genealogy, coming through Solomon unto Joseph, we have there in the genealogy, the uh, verse 12, well, actually verse 11, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Zalathiel, and Zalathiel begat uh, Zerubbabel, and, and it brings it on to Joseph. But the one I wanted to point out was this guy, Jeconias. Turn back in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, and this is concerning uh, Jaconias. Thus saith the Lord, write you this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So he's called Coniah here, which is a shortened form of Jaconias. Actually, Coniah, uh, the Jah is, is Jehovah, you see. And so Coniah, uh, Jeremiah won't recognize that he's related to Jehovah. He was a wicked king. And so verse 28, this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol. Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into the land that they know not, uh, as he was taken to Babylon? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, for none of his seed will prosper or sit on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Had Jesus been the son of Joseph, he would have been disqualified from sitting on the throne of David 
which the prophecies declare concerning the Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to order it and establish it. But you see, he will sit on the throne of David, rightfully so, because he is a descendant of Nathan, who is the son of David. And thus, he can sit upon the throne. If he was through Joseph, he could not because of Jeconias and the curse upon Jeconias because of his evil ways. None of his seed would sit upon the throne of David uh, anymore ruling in Judah. So uh, interesting that we have the two uh, genealogies, uh, the one that uh, takes us from Joseph through Jeconias disqualifying Jesus from the throne, but he's not the son of Joseph. He's actually the son of God. Uh, and uh, through Mary, whose line goes back through David, through Abraham, and traces all the way back to Adam. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Now the last event in the life of Christ that Luke records in the third chapter is his baptism by John in the Jordan River. And that's in verses 21 and 22. And Luke tells us that as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended and lighted upon him in the form of a dove. So Jesus' baptism by John and the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Now, at that point, Luke makes a little digression and he gives to us the genealogy of Mary. But as he begins to take up the story again from the baptism of Jesus, as he takes up the story again, it begins here in chapter 4. And Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended, came upon him. And now Luke describes him as being full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a term that is used in the book of Acts concerning the disciples, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are different occasions, and we have uh, in Acts where we are told they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, told them not to be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, here is Jesus, who is our example, that we should follow in his steps. And if he was filled with the Holy Spirit, then you know that it is God's will and God's purpose that your life be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the greatest needs in the church today is a renewing in the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, we had a couple that went with us on this cruise, and uh, they were so excited. They said, we've never been with a group like this before. They've been going to church for a long time, and they said, it's just, 
it, 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 you can't describe. It's just so wonderful. And, and the, they were just couldn't contain their excitement with being with a group. And we said, well, what do you think it is? And he said, well, it, it's got to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, and they're in one of those churches that sort of deny the uh, power of the Spirit, you know, doing it on man's efforts. It's a lot of perspiration, not much inspiration. And uh, it, that's a hard environment to work in. Uh, and so... What a desperate need there is for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and then he was led by the Spirit. And again, our example, it is God's desire and will that we be led by the Spirit. And uh, we are told that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That our lives be controlled, filled, led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, our example in these things. Led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Moses, we read, fasted for 40 days, as did Elijah. And now Jesus spending 40 days without food, fasting for 40 days. Afterwards, it says he hungered. Now, I have been told, I cannot confirm it by personal experience, that once you have gone into a fasting of course, you have to have water, the body's moisture. Uh, it, it, you've got to take water. But uh, they say that after five days, you lose your appetite. Uh, the best I've ever been able to do is three days, and the appetite became voracious. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was dreaming of food. But they say after five days you lose your appetite. And when the appetite returns, when you get hungry again, it is an indication that you are now entered into that phase of starving to death. And so they say it's very important that once the hunger returns that you break the fast and begin to eat or else you will starve to death. And so afterwards he was hungry. That starvation process had begun. And the devil said unto him, If thou art the Son of God, not really questioning, uh, if in a subjunctive case, since you are the Son of God, not indicative, if, question mark. But since you are the Son of God, further down in the chapter, as Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, the man with a demon spirit cries out, We know who you are, 
the Holy One of God. And in the end of the chapter, we find that Jesus was casting the evil spirits out of many people and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. So Satan is not really questioning. It's more of a declaration, since you are the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. In other words, let the Spirit serve the flesh. Let the fleshly needs reign and rule in your life over the spiritual. Let it become subservient to the physical. Now, this is a problem that we all have to deal with. There is a warfare that goes on in our lives. The flesh against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary. And they are vying for dominance, for control over your life. And all of our lives are either being ruled and governed by the flesh or governed by the spirit. And if your life is governed by the flesh, if the fleshly body needs rule in your life, if they have precedence, then according to Jesus, you are living like the heathen, who all they think about is what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. After all of these things do the heathen seek. But Jesus taught us the superiority of the spirit over the flesh. You seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. God will take care of the physical things. Let the spirit be uppermost and, and the other will be taken care of. It is God's order that the spirit rules. Now, if your flesh is ruling, then your mind is constantly occupied with the fleshly desires. And the things that you are thinking about are things that relate and pertain to your flesh. Food and drink and, and pleasure and so forth. And, and, and uh, these are the things that dominate your consciousness, your mind. And the Bible tells us that the mind of the flesh, the carnal mind, is enmity against God, is not subject to the laws of God, and either indeed can be. It's at odds with God. And thus the mind of the flesh is death. But the mind of the spirit, when the spirit is uppermost, and you are ruled by the Spirit, then the mind of the Spirit, your, your, your mind now is on the things of the Spirit. Your mind is upon God and your relationship with God and your fellowship with God. And, and the mind of the Spirit is life and it is joy and it is peace. Being on a cruise ship gives you some remarkable contrast, especially when you're with a Christian group. 
and, and the things that people's minds are on. And, and you get a, a good view of people whose minds are dominated by flesh and by the things of the flesh. The things that entertain them, the things that they enjoy, the things that they desire. And to some of the people, uh, the, the greatest experience was uh, senior frogs in uh, Mazalan. And coming back to the ship drunk as skunks. Oh, what a glorious time. Yeah. <laughs> and they were acting like fools, dancing on the trams and beating on the tower. But this is really wonderful. What a contrast. One evening, or a couple of evenings actually, we went out onto the uh, deck in the front part of the ship where it is dark and looked up into the skies and saw the constellation Orion and the shepherd and the Pleiades, the Cassiopeia and, and the various constellations. And, and it was so beautiful. It was so peaceful. It was so glorious. It, you just were there in awe of God, your mind on God, the creator, and, the, and God speaking to you because the heavens declare the glory of God. Night unto night they utter their speech. And just communing with God and thinking of the creator. In the other part of the ship there were all kinds of shows and gambling and, you know, the bars and the whole thing. But, but to be there, in that part of the ship. So what a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And, and each of us are controlled either by the flesh or by the spirit, and the result is we have the mind of the flesh, which is always on fleshly things, which is death, or the mind of the spirit, which is just life and peace and joy. Jesus, our example, now being tempted by Satan to let the fleshly desires rule over the spirit. Let the spirit be subservient to the flesh. Use the spiritual powers to minister to your fleshly needs. Command the stone. Now, I'm certain that Jesus could have changed those stones into bread. I'm certain that he had that capacity and power. So use your spirit power to minister to your flesh. And of course, Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Quoting out of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, it isn't the physical life that is paramount, but every word of God, that's what's important. That's the kind of... A, you remember when they had come to Samaria on their way north to the Galilee, 
and they had come to the city of Shechem. And Jesus waited at the well of Jacob. It said that he was weary, and the disciples went into the city to buy food, and of course the Samaritan woman came, and Jesus had her his conversation with her concerning the water that uh, he could give to her, and she would never drink thirst again, and uh, like a well of living water springing up within her, and and that whole introducing her to the life of the Spirit, and how that when the disciples came back and they had brought food, and they said, "Here, you know, eat." Jesus just smiled and said. I have bread that you know not of. For doing the will of God, so satisfying, so completely satisfying. The devil then, in verse 5, took him up into a high mountain and showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Because you're dealing with supernatural beings, Satan and Jesus, this was very possible. He could show to him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And of course, in that world, there were the powers of Egypt, the powers of Rome, and the major cities of the Middle East. He showed to him all of them, and he said, unto Jesus, all this power will I give to you and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Satan is bragging that he's in control of this world system. Bragging to Jesus that it belongs to me and I can give it to whomever I will. It is interesting to note that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the beast, that Satan gives to him his throne and his power. The Antichrist is given the power of Satan over the world. Satan says, I can give it to whomever I please. And in the book of Revelation, he will be giving it to the Antichrist, which means that Satan is still in control. Now, Jesus came to redeem the world back to God, to pay the price of redemption. Satan is saying, this was delivered to me, and who delivered it to him? Adam delivered it to him. God had given to Adam dominion over the earth. God said, I have given it to thee. But Adam delivered it over to Satan in his submitting to the temptation of Satan, to the will of Satan. Whomsoever you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you become. And, and so in, in obeying Satan's suggestion, 
He was disobeying God and that world which God had given to man to enjoy, to take care of, was delivered to Satan. And now Satan is saying to Jesus, look, it's mine, it's been delivered to me. And I can give it to whomever I will. I have that capacity. And Jesus did not challenge these statements of Satan. He accepted that. In fact, in John 14, he calls Satan the prince of this world. In the book of Daniel, you have a little insight of the uh, power of Satan uh, in the kingdoms of the world. Uh, The prince of Persia hindered the angel who was dispatched to Daniel with a message from God until Michael came and delivered him. In Ezekiel, as he addresses the king of Tyre, it goes on into the power behind the throne and it is an address unto Satan, the anointed cherub and so forth, so that there is a a relationship between the governing powers of the world and the prince of darkness and Satan. And Satan is declaring here that I am in control of these powers that govern the earth. It's a well-known fact that Hitler had as his counselors, his guides, men who were involved in the occult, the powers of darkness, and he was guided and directed by them. And no matter what you may have thought of President Reagan, and I personally admired him, but I was dismayed to realize that he was following the counsel of an astrologer. And, of course, Jean Dixon brags on the fact of how many of the presidents call her for advice. And I think of how when Pat Robertson was making a bid for the presidency, how the press put down the fact, you know, how horrible it would be to have a man in the White House when we were faced with some, natural, uh, some national emergency, a man who would be trusting in prayer. Oh, my, you know. How horrible. And, and yet, you know, they don't seem to make much to do over the fact that uh, Roosevelt and others, you know, called Jean Dixon. Well, that's, you know, she's a psychic, you know. Or that Reagan would consult the astrologer. But Satan says, hey, it's mine. I give it to whomever I will. Now, In this temptation, what Satan is actually suggesting to Jesus is that the purposes of God can be accomplished apart from the ways and the plan of God. Now, it was God's plan to reveal his love for man by the redemption. And the redemption involved the cross, and his son coming and taking our sin and dying on the cross for us 
and thus redeeming man to God. We are redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our vain manner of living, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that was God's purpose. The cross is a part of the purpose of God. As Peter talked to them about the cross in his sermon in Acts 2, he said, And you, according to the determined counsel of God, with your wicked hands have crucified and slain. That was the determined counsel of God. The plan of God. Now, Satan is saying, look, you don't have to take God's way. You can have immediate fulfillment through compromise. Bow down and worship me and I'll give it to you. That way you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to take God's way. And how Satan comes to us, and Jesus, it says, was in all points tempted like as we are, that he might be the great high priest able to help us in our temptation. And that temptation to try to shortcut and to find fulfillment apart from the cross. Jesus said, if you say to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And it is necessary for us to come to that cross in our own lives where we reckon our old life governed by the flesh to be dead that we might now live a new life after the Spirit. And you can't have real fulfillment apart from the cross. But Satan is offering all of these substitutes. He's saying, look, you can have immediate fulfillment now. It's in this little relationship over here, or it's in the bottle over here, or it's in this, or it's in that. And, and people are deceived by Satan and are being succumbed to the temptation of trying to find immediate gratification and fulfillment without the cross, without denying self. And people are being destroyed. But Jesus answered Satan, and he said in verse 8, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the temptation of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 3-4 through 4 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. 
If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, again, we thank you for sending your Son, for his coming into the world, to take upon himself our sins and to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world. Lord, we're so grateful for that which you have done. And Lord, we pray that our hearts might be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Lord, if there are places in our lives that are not pleasing to you, show us, Lord, what you would have us to do. Search us, Lord, know our hearts. If there are places where we are being lifted up or exalted, Lord, bring us down. If there are those, Lord, who are depressed, bring them up. Lord, those that are crooked, make them straight. And help us, Lord, that we might show forth the fruit of a changed life. May people be able to see the difference in us. So that even as with your disciples, they took stock of them that they had been with Jesus. Oh, Lord, may our fellowship with you and may our walk with you be evidenced by the fruit that comes forth from our lives that others, when they see us and see our good works, they'll glorify you, Lord, for what you have done in and through us. And so, Lord, here we are. We're needy people, but we thank you that you're the God of all supply and that you are able to abundantly meet our needs tonight. And so we come to you, Lord, asking that work of your Spirit to transform and to make us into the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It is my great pleasure to present Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is an open-ended book. Jesus continues, even to the present day, to work in the lives of people throughout the world through those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This book also includes a special foreword written by Pastor John Corson. We studied the book of Acts, but we never saw the book of Acts. 
but we were seeing the moving of the Holy Spirit. Calvary Chapel family, may you always be known as a people who pray in Jesus' name, that it would be Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. May the Jesus movement continue on. To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Acts Commentary, please call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online to read a sneak preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.